Good morning. Welcome back to another episode of Public Problems. I'm your host, Justin Bullock, and today is Monday, February 15th, 2021, and we're uh, podcasting live again on Facebook Live, so I'm kind of enjoying doing these bright and early Monday mornings. So we're going to continue to do these every Monday morning. And thanks to those of you who are joining us live this morning on Facebook and or watching this video and or listening to the audio. Um, so thank you. Uh, thank you for following along. <clears throat> well, I have a couple updates for you today and we'll do a little bit of a recap of last week's segment. Um, so we're all kind of caught up on where the conversation is. And then today I'm going to do something um, a little different than the last week. Instead of going through some literature, I'm going to give you a brief um, lecture, I guess is the best way to describe it, and uh, getting you to think about one of the major public problems um, that as I've been doing my own research that I've settled on is something that's really important. And so I'm going to use um, Godzilla uh, to help make this point. I was watching Godzilla in preparation for a Rabbit Weasel podcast, um, which is another podcast I uh, participate in with my brother Jared and my wife Mia. And in watching that and going back through the the early early Godzilla movie, I noticed a lot of there are a lot of parallels there that are going to help me make my points this morning. So we're going to use we're going to use Godzilla to help us understand uh, existential risk and the value alignment problem. So, wish us luck on that. Okay, so a couple of updates before um, before we move forward into the lecture this morning. Um, first one is thanks to those of you who are continuing to support the podcast on Patreon. Um, today we had a Zoom set up for the first uh, live recording on Zoom for supporters. And on February 25th, which is a Thursday, we're going to have an Ask Me Anything session with me on Zoom. So if you are a Patreon supporter, you have received messages about those events. And if you become a supporter between now and then, you'll receive a message about those events. We'll be doing the same events in March, and I'll let you know those dates towards the end of this month. Okay, so last week we... um, said goodbye to uh, the Odd John book by Olaf Stapleton. And I announced and, and let you know that this book that I'm working on, Low Wainwright, is in some ways a bit of a, could be considered a sequel of Odd John. There are new characters. It goes in a new direction. But some of the characters from uh, Odd John, John Wainwright being one of them, and a few others, um, make some appearances in that book. So what we'll start doing and following up with that story is starting to read some of uh, the drafts of the book Low Wainwright that I'm that I'm working through. It'll be published in early July, but on our journey to early July, July 1, uh, I'm going to read most of, large parts of the book to you. Um, so if you, again, if you haven't gotten the chance to read Odd John and you enjoyed, uh, the bits of it that I shared with you, um, you might consider buying it on Amazon or listening to it on Audible. 
Okay. This week I wanted to do something a little bit different. Uh, as part of the podcast, I have wanted to introduce some more literature, um, but I also want to do some of what I do for my day job, which is provide information about major pressing policy issues, major challenges uh, from a public problem standpoint. Um, and we've done some of this throughout the throughout the audio uh, podcast. You can go back to some of the early episodes and I lay out some frameworks for you about how I think about public problems. But what I'd like to do moving forward is focus on a couple of specific ones um, that I want to give you as the as the viewer, you as the listener, a little bit more um, details on and and um, a little bit more information from what I've been studying in the academic uh, audience and make it uh, uh, and share it with you. So the first thing of, uh, that I want to talk through with you is this idea of the value alignment problem. And this is going to be something that we'll spend a couple of different lectures like this on. Um, but to get to that, I realize that you need a lot of other language that will help you understand why we're going to focus in on the value alignment problem as one of the specific major public problems. And <clears throat> we're gonna build on some work that's out there. Um, in particular, you should check out uh, Toby Ord's The Precipice and Nick Bostrom's Superintelligence and Max Tegmark's Life 3.0. They all highlight in a kind of a popular press kind of way um, the challenges of the value alignment problem. So again, let's back away from that just a little bit. And I want to throw a couple of concepts at you that will help put this idea of the value alignment problem in perspective. All right. So there are going to be three basic concepts that are related that I want you to think about as we come back to the value alignment problem at the end um, to, to tie it together. And also as I'm going to walk you through an example that I hope makes it, helps make it clear. So these three concepts for you today are one, existential risk, two, risk factors, existential risk factors, and security factors, existential security factors, all right? So there are these three terms, existential risk as a concept, existential risk factors, and security factors, all right? Existential risks are going to be things that could permanently harm humanity's potential or destroy humanity. These are things that could be so harmful to all of us that it permanently keeps us from moving forward as a species. This is an ex existential risk. Okay, the existential risk community has identified the top 
five arguably most important existential risks. And these are things that could potentially threaten the permanent, um, uh, could permanently damage the flourishing of humans. One of these is the value alignment problem, which we're going to get more about. The second is human engineered pandemics. The third is nuclear weapons. The fourth is climate change. And the fifth is environmental degradation. And these aren't necessarily in the order of our priority or how much concern we need to be about them. We'll delve into more of this as we talk more about existential risk as a guiding framework for thinking about public problems. But those are five. Some of those you may have heard of, some of those you might be familiar with, but we'll be revisiting those. One of the classic ones that most people are aware of is nuclear weapons. And that's what our example is going to build off of today as well. Okay, risk factors and security factors. Now, while these five things that I just listed are all risks to humanity in the sense that they could cause humanity to be either destroyed or to permanently hamper humanity's ability to move forward, risk factors kind of increase the likelihood of, an, of, of all existential risks or some portion of them. Security factors help protect you against them, all right? So while I listed the top five types of existential risks, risk factors are things that increase the overall likelihood of an existential risk, make it more likely. Security factors make them less likely, all right? So again, before I move on into extended uh, example here with Godzilla to make this maybe a little bit more clear, um, existential risks to humanity are those that either could cause humanity to go extinct or to permanently hamper their flourishing. Five potential really concerning uh, existential risks are the value alignment problem, pandemics, particularly those human engineered, nuclear weapons, climate change, and environmental degradation. Those are types of risks. Risk factors are things that can make those worse. Say great, uh, say global war. And security factors are things that lower those risks. So things like strong functioning international democratic institutions. All right. So those are the concepts. Keep those in the back of your mind. And I want to walk through um, an example that I hope kind of drives it home. So the example is the famous character Godzilla. And what made me think about Godzilla, as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, is that in addition to this podcast, I've been doing the Rabid Weasel podcast. And in the Rabbit Weasel podcast, every other week we pick a horror movie that is of interest either to my brother or to me or to my wife. And we've done a number of fun classics. We've done Frankenstein, um, Nosferatu, which is a 
early vampire movie. And these movies are become really interesting to me because they're often exploring what I would consider dystopias. So these situations where technology or society um, and decisions that have been made um, lead to uh, a really bad outcome. Um, and um, sometimes this is creating a monster, like Frankenstein. Sometimes this is a, a, an invasion of an alien species, which is the invasion of the body snatchers, which is another one that we've done. And, and in this case, the nightmare is Godzilla. So for those of you that aren't familiar, Godzilla is a very large Jurassic period lizard. Looks kind of like a, a mix between a brontosaurus and a T-Rex. Um, and the series of Godzilla has been going on since the movie that we're going to talk about, that I'm talking about right now, which was in 1954. I think there are over 30 Godzilla movies. Um, and Godzilla takes a lot of different forms and a lot of different storylines for Godzilla. But I want to go to the original one today, which was a black and white movie. It's a Japanese film, and it was made in 1954. And if you haven't seen this movie, basically what happens is a couple of ships start sinking in the waters near Japan. And it turns out that there's this giant 165-foot monster called Godzilla. And... He is sinking ships, and eventually he comes ashore and stomps around in the city, blowing his nuclear breath all over Tokyo and burns it. And throughout the movie, we learn that Godzilla um, um, is has been brought to life by, uh, as a consequence of nuclear testing, of the H-bomb testing. And... Godzilla comes, and there are all these just dark scenes of fire in the background, Godzilla stomping around, killing people. And as part of this, uh, one of the scientists in the, in the movie has created something called, spoiler alert, the Oxygen Destroyer. And this is the, the new technology that, that could potentially be used to destroy... Godzilla, and there's this ethical uh, dilemma that plays out where the scientist is trying to decide whether or not it's worth it to bring in a new technology into the world that, yes, it could uh, could kill Godzilla, but in the wrong hands could destroy oxygen for everyone and kill anyone. And there's this back and forth about whether or not the it's a good idea to use this technology to destroy Godzilla. And again, spoiler alert, um, the technology is used to kill Godzilla. The scientist burns all his papers and um, allows himself to um, be killed as part of trying to kill Godzilla. So there's a lot of uh, commentary uh, out about this uh, movie, but you, if you ever watch it, uh, which I encourage you to do, the, the point of the movie... <laughs> um, is it's pretty clear Godzilla is symbolizing nuclear testing and in particular um, potentially American testing of, of H-bombs 
And the thing that struck me as I was was watching this was a couple of things. One, this problem of Godzilla was human-made. So Godzilla uh, is, we're told that Godzilla is either kind of as his own undersea habitat and has been just likely destroyed by H-bomb testing. And the H-bomb testing has made him radioactive. So this is a human-made problem. And um, the other piece of this is this was only made about nine years after the bombing, uh, firebombing of Tokyo um, by the uh, by the Americans. And what I thought was really interesting about having uh, Godzilla throw fire flames into the city was how vivid this must have been for the audience at the time, just in the wake of of these of these fire bombings. The other thing that you notice in this movie is that you can really um, make Godzilla angry by flashing lights at him or shooting things at him. This make this draws Godzilla's attention, and he comes at the people in the movie and um, knocks them over or kills them. Um, and the better way to get Godzilla to uh, to go away um, is to kind of leave him alone. Um, and um, are also to use this oxygen destroyer, which is this new kind of technology that the scientists have created. Okay, so let me tie this back to uh, back to our existential risk and our risk factors and security factors. So I want you to think of Godzilla as an existential risk to the people on of of Japan in the case of this movie. And Godzilla shows up with some probability. We don't really know um, why, but we have done something that has brought him uh, uh, brought him to life, and he has the potential to destroy the entire island. That's what's kind of made clear in the movie. So Godzilla, in this case, is an existential risk to the island of Japan and the city of Tokyo. That makes him an existential risk. You can think of the risk factors of of making uh, Godzilla's uh, damage worse, uh, these risk factors of shining lights at him or H-bomb testing. There was H-bomb testing. It, it brought Godzilla to life, brought him out of his habitat. Those are risk factors. Whereas security factors would be things that you could do to... Uh, to discourage the likelihood that Godzilla would return, that he would continue to be a threat. And the way that that's handled in the movie is through the creation of a new technology that destroys Godzilla's oxygen underwater and, uh, and kills him. This was in 1954, um, Clearly, a clearly commentary on the on nuclear weapons and the and, and hydrogen bomb testing, which is one of also the existential risks still for humanity, even from 1954. Although there have not been uh, major bombings since World War II, uh, nuclear weapons remain with us and re- have the capacity um, to cause great harm to the entire world. 
Another example that we're living through today is a pandemic. There's still questions about where the pandemic came from, whether it was human engineered, whether it was natural. But we're seeing now how um, something like a pandemic can spread across the world and be an, potentially an existential risk for all of humanity. We also have watched in real time how some things make it worse. There's some risk factors um, with how, uh, how likely a pandemic is and what the consequences are from it. And there are some security factors, some things that make its damage less likely and less harmful. Now, what does all of this have to do with the value alignment problem? What is the value alignment problem? Okay. So the value alignment problem is this idea in, by computer scientists and artificial intelligence researchers and philosophers that as AI tools become more and more powerful, as they're able to do more and more things more quickly, more successfully, that eventually they'll be able to do all the types of tasks that we can do and do them better, all right? And so if we can create technological tools that can do things better than us, then we need to make sure that those tools have the same values as we do, that their interests are aligned with ours, okay? This same challenge comes up in government so people in a democracy try to collectively make sure the government's interests and values are aligned with theirs and that it behaves in a way that reflects their interests. And in that way, there's an, a value alignment problem there as well between how people align the government's behavior with their preferences. But when we're talking about the value alignment problem as a major existential risk to humanity, what we're talking about is the ability of ever increasingly smart technological tools, machine learning tools, to learn things and process things and have more knowledge than the humans that create them. And if that's the case, then the idea is that they'll be able to um, outmaneuver us. And so if they're able to outmaneuver us because they can outthink us, we need to make sure that the machines share our values. That's the value alignment problem. How do we make sure that ever-powerful machines share the interests of humanity? And I think for some people, this still seems um, a little far out there, a little science fiction-y. Um, but there's a lot of, of different publicly accessible work that kind of highlights this. I mentioned some of these earlier. Some of my own work is in this area. We're looking at this in, in some current research that I'm doing um, with people from lots of different disciplines. But bringing it back to the Godzilla example, if Godzilla shows up and Godzilla is 
more powerful than us, stronger than us, in some ways maybe more intelligent than us. He can kind of wreak his havoc on our society. And if we're not able to kill him, we need to find some other way to make sure that we're on the same team. Um, and this is, again, this is the value element problem. How do we make sure that Godzilla is on our team? And it's a really hard problem. This does play out in later movies, but I will leave that to you to look at uh, in your own time to follow the Godzilla series. Okay, I hope this uh, running metaphor of Godzilla as an existential risk and the things that we do to make him more angry as a potential risk factor, things that we do to make him less angry, protect ourselves as security factors, and that you start thinking about how these existential risks are something that we all struggle with as a global community. They're not just challenges for Americans. They're not just... um, challenges for Europeans or Chinese or Africans. They're, they're challenges for all of us. These things in our globally connected world affect all of us. All right. Well, that's it for this week. Um, thank you for following along. We will be back. I'll be back with you next Monday morning, bright and early, and i um, looking forward to it. Thanks so much. <laughs>